There are some preachers, even on our day, because they deny the uniqueness of Israel. They say the church has replaced Israel. They're wrong. They are dead wrong. God is not done with the Jewish people. He used them to bring the first coming. He is going to use them to bring the second coming. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working our way through the book of Revelation and are in chapter 18. We've been looking at some of the events that will take place following the rapture of the church and the time known as the tribulation. We've looked at the multitude of judgments that will befall the earth during this seven-year period, and we noted that a charismatic character, the Antichrist, will come upon the scene. This individual will encourage a one-world religion comprised of all the religions left in the world following the removal of Christians. And the Antichrist will set up his headquarters in a city referred to as Babylon. Like the Babylons of the Old Testament, this will be a center of apostasy and wicked perversions. As we pick up, Dr. Rogi notes that it's very possible that this city will be in Rome and could even be Vatican City and he draws a distinction between Christianity and other religions. The religions of the world are not all willed by God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you have to decide, are you going to believe the Pope? Are you going to believe the Lord Jesus? Now, Pope Francis, who is given the title as the head of the church, he would be wise to bow down and worship the true head and to agree with what the Lord Jesus has said. Now, we carefully examined from a number of passages why only one city, Rome, could fit the parameters of these two chapters. And let me just say parenthetically, as a former Roman Catholic, I am not a Catholic basher. And there are born-again Catholics in the world who, through their own study of Scripture, have come to know the Lord Jesus. I'm not a Catholic basher. I want to see the one-plus billion Roman Catholics who are not converted to come to true faith. But the Roman Catholic Church, on paper, denies justification by grace alone through faith alone. They deny the five solas of the Reformation that are on the window behind you. And if anyone is doing the bashing, it is the Roman Catholic Church because in the Council of Trent that met from 1542 to 1568, reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and then as recently as 2011 through the College of Cardinals, saying that the Council of Trent and its dogmas are absolutely true and to be observed. In that document, there are over 100 anathemas over 100 statements damning people to hell, not of all the isms of the world, but to Bible-believing evangelical Christians. So let's be clear as to who is doing the bashing in our day. And so we saw John use the identical kind of terminology that he used in Revelation 11 and verse 8. While this is a real city, There is some symbolic meaning behind it. If you remember Revelation 11 and verse 8, he speaks of the great city, here Jerusalem. Remember, two cities are called the great city in the Bible, Jerusalem, God's city, and Babylon, the second most mentioned city, man's city. The great city, he says specifically, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. 
Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 mentions Rome as Babylon, which obviously cannot be Iraq since God said it would never be inhabited again. There he said, she, the church who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. He's passing on salutations from the believers in Rome, and he refers to the church as being in Babylon. It's a code name like Wall Street or Madison Avenue, and appropriately so because the Babylonian Empire paralleled the Roman Empire in terms of size, splendor, power, and in the negative sense in terms of decadence and depravity. And so it's well documented in literature since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that the Jewish people throughout the centuries to this day refer to Rome as Babylon. All of the early church fathers who came right after the apostles, much of their writings which we have, in fact, as I gave in my course in Bibliology, you can reproduce the entire Bible, the entire New Testament, just through the writings of the church fathers, and they repeatedly refer to Rome as Babylon. In Revelation 17, drop down to verse 18, notice God through his angel um, gives John an added meaning as to how we're to understand the entity known as the woman. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This tells us that the woman is both a religious system, but it is also a literal city. We saw God do the same thing with the beast, with the Antichrist. He is a literal person, but he has a kingdom. And we do the same thing today. We say Hitler bombed England. He didn't literally bomb England, but his kingdom did, so to speak. And please note that it says in this verse, the woman is the great city. Not the woman will be like the great city. He is describing a real place, a real city. Listen, the scripture is inspired down to the tense of a verb. Jesus gave an argument for his deity on the tense of a verb. Not I was the God of Abraham, but I am. Paul d distinguishes between the, the word seeds, plural, and the word seed, singular. The Bible is inspired down to the smallest jot and tittle, Jesus said. The woman is the great city. He's describing a real place, a real city that is in existence when he writes the book of Revelation in 95 AD, which of course would eliminate places like New York and Hollywood and some of the other popular spots that wackos on the internet choose. So he's describing the great city built on seven mountains or oruses or hills. Now, if you go into the Bible lands today and you go to say to the Mount of Olives, you say, this isn't a mountain, this is a big hill. God calls it the Mount of Olives. And if he wants to call it a mountain, then I'm gonna go with God, all right? He can call it whatever he wants to call it. The term is used interchangeably of a hill or a mountain. Now remember verse nine, here is the mind which has wisdom. The truth that is being presented here symbolically requires some spiritual insight if we're gonna interpret it correctly. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads, he's doing it for us, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the great city sits on seven mountains. And so many ancient writers, including Victorinus, who has left us the oldest remaining commentary in the book of Revelation, identifies the seven hills that John is describing as Rome. So mystery Babylon is described as the center of the world religions. Babylon the Great is described as the economic and commercial power of the world. And yet chapters 17 and 18 are describing the same place. 
Now, if you were here, we went through three messages just on the 17th chapter. And we saw how the 10 kings, under the leadership of the Antichrist, and according to the next verse, says God's will destroyed religious Babylon. And yet in the 18th chapter, it is very, very much in existence. How so? I take it probably they are destroying a section of Babylon. In fact, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven to find out that it's this place pictured known as the Vatican, which is a city within a city. Now, I'm not saying that the Roman Catholic Church is the one world religion that is represented in chapter 17 because it is not. The religion of chapter 17 are all the isms of the world. You see that bumper sticker coexist? That's the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. All of the religions of the world will be mixed together. But I will not be at all surprised if they use this 100-acre site on which the Pope and his followers have as their own city within a city. It has its own unique flag, its own unique citizenship. The Vatican City has its own permanent observer status in the United Nations, not represented by the ambassador that represents other Italians. And I find it interesting that on two separate occasions as recorded by God, God makes it very clear that there is a distinction. Because remember, we're going to, we've studied it already with religious Babylon, 10 kings, according to God's will, because God's sovereign. Look, Luther had it right on this. He was all mixed up on the Jewish people. But he had it right on this. The devil is God's devil. That is, the devil doesn't have absolute freedom. He is allowed to do what he can do under the hand of a sovereign God. And, of course, these ten kings obliterate religious Babylon. And yet, when we come to chapter 18, we're going to see the kings of the world now mourning over the destruction of Babylon because it is God from heaven who is going to destroy it. Look at chapter 17 and verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. And then drop down to verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, the Antichrist, these will hate the harlot, this one world religion, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Yet somehow, this city continues on. And so in the first half, the religions of the world coexist. But then an event takes place right in the middle of the, of the seven-year period. It's called the abomination of desolation. Daniel in his 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9 says it happens right in the middle of the seven years. And Jesus does the same thing in Matthew chapter 24. And it is an event when the Antichrist will go into a rebuilt temple there on the Temple Mount and he will profess himself to be God and accompanied with that act is there'll be some inanimate object that will come to life. And the peoples of the world are going to be asked to worship the Antichrist through such an object. They're going to be asked to reproduce in, the, in their own in image like that that they can worship. And the Jewish people will realize this cannot be Messiah because God would never go against his word. God would never ask us to do something that is idolatrous. And so there will be no more coexistence. Yes, there will be a one-world religion, but it will be the one-world religion of the Antichrist, and men will be forced 
to worship through the Antichrist and they will be forced to submit to his economic system because you will be asked as a follower of this one world religion to take his mark, 666. And the Bible says you will not be able to buy or sell anything unless you have the mark of the beast. And so by this time in the seven year time frame, the tribulation period has seen its zenith of evil. That's where we're at right now. And Christ is getting ready to come back from heaven to the earth. He's come for his church in the rapture. He comes for his saints. He'll come back with his saints. In the rapture, we meet him in the air. At the second coming, he literally, physically actually comes to the earth. The Bible says he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, you would think that during this seven-year period, that the world would want to repent, especially as God brings his judgments. In the first half of the tribulation, we saw the seven sealed judgments. But as God brings these judgments, he's also bringing the gospel. How so? 144,000 Jewish people who are converted. How are they converted? I don't know. Maybe it's a Damascus Road experience. I suspect that since there's an even number, an exact number, 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000 who become the evangelists to the world. Right now, Gentiles, for the most part, with few exceptions, are sharing the gospel across the world. In this seven-year period, it will be the Jew, largely. They will be sharing the gospel. There's four groups. Those whom they have converted through the preaching of the gospel that will include both Jew and Gentile. John, when he describes their number, he says they're like the sands of the seashore. Then there will be two witnesses in the first half of this seven-year period. I suggested to you they are probably Moses and Elijah. And then, of course, those two men are murdered, and their bodies lay for three and a half days in the streets of Jerusalem. The world parties over them, and then God miraculously brings them back to life. But something else is going to happen during this time. The Antichrist is going to have a fatal wound. He is going to be slaughtered, and people are going to think it's over for him. But he, too, is going to come back to life, and he is going to be the world ruler. So there's the 144,000. There's those who are saved who are witnessing during this time, tribulation saints who have met Jesus. There is the two witnesses, and the fourth group, very important as well, is an angel who preaches an eternal gospel. Jesus, by the way, said at this time, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. We've been trying to fulfill the Great Commission. We still have some 6,000 people groups in the world that are unreached. But every tribe and tongue and nation during this time frame are going to be reached with the gospel. That doesn't mean we quit or throw up our hands and say, well, it's gonna happen anyway, we don't need to do it. No, we are called to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone that will listen. We are to go to preach the gospel to everyone under heaven. But God is going to accomplish it during this seven-year period. And you would think through the preaching of these groups and through these judgments that are coming upon the earth that people would want to repent, but they don't. Three times over in the 16th chapter, before we reach this interlude, three times over it says they blasphemed the God of heaven. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. And so I want you to listen carefully here in the 18th chapter to what the people are speaking. 
because it will help you to see where they are spiritually. And maybe you'll see yourself in one of these four groups this morning. If you're taking notes, that's all by way of introduction. You say, I was wondering, Pastor. All right, I'm ready. First, there is the cry of the monarchs. The first group concerns the cry of the monarchs or the kings of the earth. Look, if you will, now in verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now, do not miss this. Having just told God's people in verses 4 to 8 to come out of her, and God will often give his people warnings. He told Lot, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out of Dodge. Get out of here because God is going to judge it. And whomever you have in this city, bring them out. And so God says here in verse 4 of chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Very similar, by the way, to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, not through the historian, as the liberal would say, but through the prophet Daniel, because Daniel wrote of it 600 years before Christ, when you see that event, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So here is God calling through his angel to his people, literally, physically, actually, get out of Babylon, get out of there. And so having uh, completed that call to come out, now the angel describes what the kings of this world will lament over. And again, there is this one world empire that the Antichrist is ruling where this name Babylon is a symbolic term, much like Wall Street uh, refers to the stock exchange, much like Madison Avenue refers to advertising. Babylon refers to this one world system and specifically Rome. Now, the world has been connected initially religiously, but now there's one economic system, and it's going to create wealth like you could never imagine. And this city, Babylon, is going to become the wealthiest place on the face of the earth. And if you remember uh, from chapter, look at verse 9, it says, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her. So here are these kings of the earth, these leaders, and the Bible says that they committed acts of immorality with this city called Babylon. Now, how in the world do you commit an act of immorality with a city? Well, often in Scripture, God links spiritual unfaithfulness to a sexual sin. He does this with Israel of old, and he does it with the church. For instance, in James chapter 4, James will say, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He uses the term adultery, moikeia, that is a term used often in the New Testament to describe extramarital sex between two people who are married. God is married to Israel in the Old Testament. He is married to the church in the New Covenant. And so he describes spiritual unfaithfulness among his people as adultery. But here he does not use the term adultery. He uses the word pornea, fornication. Why? Because these are lost people. These are unbelievers who are committing acts of spiritual immorality. And so when they see their harlot, their city, their lover go up and smoke, the Bible says they weep and they lament. Now, how do all the kings of the earth literally see this event? 
Well, the next verse seems to indicate that they're probably here in Babylon for some conference, probably some world conference, trying to figure out the problems, but not to mention they will be able through television and satellite across the world, through CNN, which will not be fake news at this time, they will be able to see this place go up in smoke. Look at verse 10. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. There's never been anything like this in human history that would fit this. Now, if you were here for the opening sermon, I went through four approaches to the book of Revelation. Three are just absolute nonsense. And there are some preachers, even on our day, because they deny the uniqueness of Israel. They say the church has replaced Israel. They're wrong. They are dead wrong. God has not done with the Jewish people. He used them to bring the first coming. He is going to use them to bring the second coming. Now, I let some of them, even one, preach in my pulpit because he's a brother and he has the gospel. And you all know him. He's known across the world. But he is wrong to say that the church has replaced Israel. God has not done with the Jewish people. Just as he used them to bring the first coming, he's going to use them to bring the second coming. So what do those guys do when they come to Revelation? They spiritualize half the book. But you cannot spiritualize a verse like this. The Bible says they are standing at a distance. That's a physical proximity. He's describing a real place, and they're a certain distance away from it. And these kings, no doubt, who are coming together, they're planning, they're scheming on how to deal with the world's problems. They are going to be lured, as we studied in the 16th chapter, and as we'll study in more detail in the 19th chapter, to a battle by demons called Armageddon, and they're going, against, going to go against God's Christ. And so notice what these rulers say. Whoa, whoa, the great city, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. This city has survived. Why? Because God allowed it to survive. He allows them to dream, to scheme against the people of Israel, but they are only going to meet God in destruction. Whoa, whoa, it's a, it's a double woe because of all of their passions, all of their hopes, all of their ambitions, all of their dreams are now smothered. They're disillusioned, they're disappointed. The great city, the strong city, that bunker that they thought could never come down is now going up in smoke. And this is not some long, protracted discussion, uh, destruction. It's instantaneous in one hour. Very, very quick, God is underscoring as they walk the, watch the smoke of her burning. Now, that's the first cry, the cry of the monarchs. Now, there's a second cry that John records for us, and it's the cry of the merchants, the cry of the merchants. We're introduced to the merchants here in verse 11. Follow along. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. So now the merchants, they take up the song of the kings. They weep. The word is clio. That, that's verbal. And they mourn. That speaks of tears. The kings, they weep and they lament. Weep is verbal. Lament of the kings. That means when you literally pound your fist on your chest. These guys weep and they cry, tears running down their face. These businessmen, these CEOs, who become rich and famous and powerful, they are watching their city go up in smoke. This is the epitome of luxury, as we're going to see in a moment. And these people, you'd think they would want to get right with God. Are they broken over their sin? No, they're broken 
over their financial loss. Why? Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Now, John is looking into the future, and he sees the future in a way that he can understand it and which his audience can understand it. And so he gives 27 items that represent great riches, many of which still to this day apply. In fact, many of the items that he mentions are unique to the city of Rome and not to Asia on Patmos where he's writing from. Now, I could do a word study, I suppose, on each one. I'm not going to do that. But first, at the top of the list in verse 12, he mentions cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. Then he mentions costly garments and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Third, he begins to list furniture and various trinkets and every kind of citron wood. Sometimes it's translated uh, fine wood. It's a highly prized wood. It comes from the Sardinac gum tree. Uh, today, it is still highly prized. It's one of the most expensive wood in the world to have a piece of furniture made from. Sometimes they use it as an inlay, and sometimes the Roman emperors would make an entire banquet table out of it. It's luxury to the hilts in every article of ivory, in every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. Fourth, look in the beginning in verse 13, he begins to mention other luxury items, cinnamon and spice, not necessary, but luxuries of the day, and incense and perfume and frankincense, you know, little luxuries to sweeten up the body, make things smell better, and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat, these represent fine dining, some that would need to be imported. Fifth, in cattle and sheep, in cargoes of horses, because a person's wealth in the first century was often measured by the number of animals he had. In chariots, and he uses a Greek word for a four-wheeled chariot. That was the finest vehicle. Some of you came today in a four-wheeled chariot of sorts. And uh, the bottom line, though, is that there's a complete abandonment to wealth. They give themselves to money, to things, with total disregard for God. And if that were not enough, he adds in slaves and human beings. Now, that's kind of an interesting addition. You say, slavery? John's talking about slavery at the end of time? Yes, he is. Slavery is against the law across the planet today on paper but it continues in many countries of the world. And I'm not talking about sex trafficking. I'm talking literally about people who are held for collateral debt bondage. Some of you have told me you've come from countries like that, where if you owe someone money, you become their slave until that debt is paid. And if the debt is not paid before you die, then your relative takes up in the place where you left off. The top countries of the world and the United Nations has put ranges of between 21 million and 48 million people today who are in this kind of slavery. The top countries include India, China, Pakistan, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Russia, Thailand, the DR Congo, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. But God, who knows the future, writes about the future ever before it happens, and so he includes slaves in human lives. It's actually not two categories, but one. Slaves, the ESV says human souls. The ISV says uh, slaves, that is human souls. He's talking about people who are 
slaves. And I suspect many of them are believers. I mean, why cut off their head, which is what will happen to most believers who refuse to follow the Antichrist? Chapter 20, verse 4. They'll be beheaded during this time. Something our Muslim friends have reintroduced into human history. Why cut off their head when you can make some of them your personal slave? Tomorrow we'll conclude our message from Revelation 18 entitled, The Cry When Babylon Falls. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series in Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org, or simply order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV52. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Join us again tomorrow as we finish up Revelation 18 and search the Scriptures.